Hello and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It is a wonderful episode 75. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by Mark Pearson Freeland for what is to be a very exciting new series. Hello, Mark. Hey, hey. Good morning, Mike. It's a nice autumnal, cool Sydney day, isn't it? Beautiful blue skies are out. And there's certainly blue skies when we start a new series, Mark. Where do we go now? We've just ended a rip-roaring journey into the world of media innovators. What's next? Mm, After that powerhouse of a trilogy of the media crew, we're now stepping a little bit more into the psychological space of Adam Grant. He is a very, very impressive author, TED talker, as well as tenured professor. Uh, In fact, I think he got his tenure at the age of 28, which is an incredible age, (laughs) isn't it? I know. Can you imagine being 28 and having a job for life guaranteed? Mm -hmm. But but what you left out is perhaps his two biggest achievements, uh, Mark, and that is that Adam Grant was not only an All-American diving champion, he's also quite a good magician. (laughs) So I'm honestly asking myself, what can this guy not do? Because I think Adam Grant can deliver these amazing books that give us insights into our minds and behavior, but it sounds like he can pull off pretty much anything he puts his mind to. And so my question is, with all of his body of work, where do we want to start this journey into author and tenured professor Adam Grant? Well, I think although I'd love to begin with his uh, magician uh, background, (laughs) maybe... And tips and tricks. (laughs) Yeah, the tips and tricks of of the magician. We're actually going to begin with his first book, which came out in 2013, Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success. Hmm. And we've got some... uh, We're going to go for a special one here. We're going to go for a double header, a two-clip magic combo um, so we've supersized uh, the, the upfront of this show where we're going to hear from the author himself, um, first of all. And what's really good is we hear from him really the, the background that has led him to this work, to understanding, giving and taking and life in the workplace. So I want you to look around the room for a minute and try to find the most paranoid person here. <laughs> And then I want you to point at that person for me. Okay, don't actually do it. But as an organizational psychologist, I spend a lot of time in workplaces, and I find paranoia everywhere. Paranoia is caused by people that I call takers. Takers are self-serving in their interactions. It's all about what can you do for me. The opposite is a giver. It's somebody who approaches most interactions by asking, what can I do for you? And I wanted to give you a chance to think about your own style. We all have moments of giving and taking. Your style is just how you treat most of the people most of the time. Your default. Yeah, the givers and the takers. This is going to be at the heart of this show, understanding what exactly this looks like, seeing the behavior, working out how we can adopt the behavior. And then if we're really good, we can work out how to teach, to inspire, and to support others in giving a whole lot more than they're taking. But what I'm going to do right now, Mark, is I'm just going to drop us straight in deep. This is a great 60-second deep dive 
into the real content of Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. Adam Grant wrote the book, Give and Take, to help us understand how the world's most successful people approach the world around them and how you can do the same. For a taker, their driving motivation is to make sure they get more than they give. They count every contribution they make and ensure that they get more in return. For a giver, their driving motivation is to give more than they get. They focus on what others need from them. Givers take care to recognize what other people contribute. As a result, givers earn the respect of their collaborators. Perhaps surprisingly, the top of the success food chain is dominated by givers. However, you'll also see some givers at the bottom as well. The difference between the givers at the top and the bottom of the food chain is that the successful givers match their desire to help others with ambitious goals of their own. Become that type of giver, and you'll soon find yourself at the top of the success food chain with the other givers of the world. So there you have it. Give and take in 60 seconds. A great synopsis from both Adam as well as as a third party. I'm where what I like about you know the Adam Grant series, but also specifically the Give and Take book that we're focusing on for this episode, is this awareness of uh, human connection in business nowadays. And obviously, we'll be delving into you know a couple of different strands of that. Firstly, understanding it, and then like say how we how we can inspire others and motivate others. Mm. But it, just to call out here, what's what's interesting about Adam's work is. He's looked at business in the past where perhaps it was a little bit about who you knew. It was a little bit about how much work you put in your passion. Um, I think he's, he's even cited, you know, luck in the past was, was possibly a, a driver of success. But actually where we're seeing ourselves nowadays is it actually really, really depends on how you interact with others, other people, mm. other colleagues, uh, HR departments, uh, CEOs, founders, and so on. And what I think is the focus of this particular book is a lot of people do fall into one of these three uh, boxes. And I suppose it's figuring out, okay, well, where do I sit? How do I be inspired by others? And where do I figure out what is that um, that intersection, I suppose, between each of the different um, each of the different goals, each of the different individuals? And why don't you just um, before we before we uh, dive into some more clips, Mark, why don't you kind of paint a little bit of a picture of those three archetypes because these are themes that are going to come back a lot in this show. So why don't you paint uh, uh, that picture for our listeners and then we can sort of have that as a North Star and then we can keep coming back to that throughout the show. So why don't you hit them up with your best Adam Grant wisdom? Beautiful. Okay, okay. I'll start with the, the takers. Uh, because they're perhaps the easiest to to really grasp. Takers are a little bit more um, self-focused, I suppose. They have their own interests, uh, perhaps in the front of their minds, perhaps over others' needs, uh, and they'll try to gain as much as they can from interacting with other people. Maybe they even go so far as to uh, put forward less of their own effort and actually use other people's work uh, that they've mm. delegated to better themselves, so a little bit, a little bit. I love, yeah, yeah, that's typical. And I think they're also they're always keeping score, and they're looking for immediate give and take. And they they sort of lack any sort of faith in just good karma. Like they have no patience 
in just doing the right thing and knowing whether directly or indirectly the right thing will come back to them. They're always keeping score. And, and you know, the, the classic thing is that they're always ex, uh, extracting their pound of flesh. Mm, exactly, exactly. And who are those, the givers of the pound of flesh? Well, they're the givers, they're others focused. You know, they are providing support to those around them, sometimes with, you know, no strings attached. They'll often wonder in their day-to-day work, okay, well, how can I dedicate some of my time to helping my colleagues, my coworkers? And actually, as we'll find out when we explore some some of Adam's work, that's not necessarily the best behavior to have because it can be very detrimental. Exactly. Exactly. And what we heard in the previous clip is the secret formula. Um, And what Adam Grant really gets to now, this is really, guys, this is really his formula. It's when givers are giving in line with their goals. And he said, this is what really separates those that ascend those that achieve fulfillment, satisfaction, success is when they are givers who have great goals where there is good alignment between the giving and the goals. If you're just giving it with reckless abandon, then chances are some people might take advantage of you or you'll have a disconnect between your immediate behavior and your um, long-term ambitions. So that's why those goals need to match to the giving. But there's a sort of a silent majority in all of this. We've talked about givers. We've talked about takers. But what's the third archetype that Adam Grant points out for us? I mean, the third is, I suppose you could call it the center of the Venn diagram, but they're called the matches. So they actually preserve quite an equal balance of the taker's attitude, but also the giver's attitude. So instead of landing on either side of the fence, it's a, it's a, uh, reciprocity. You take from me, I'll take from you. If you give to me, I'll give something to you. And it's that very fair exchange of effort, of work, of deliverables. And that's, I suppose, the the sweet spot, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure if it's the sweet spot. I think what Adam actually challenges us to do is that the matches will take inspiration from either party. So it's sort of our job to make sure that we get givers next to the matches because they will match the behavior type. They can be influenced either way. Uh, You know, a lot of the takers, um, it can be a hard job to get them out of that behavior type, but the matches will um, adopt the behavior. If the cultural uh, default within a team is to give, the matches will pony up and come to the party. Whereas if it's a majority of taking culture, they can be swung the other way. So I think there's a lot inside of this. And, I, and actually, when we zoom out, there's a couple of big things coming up for our, for our listeners. One, that giving as a default is not as easy as it might sound. Two, there are a lot of people that are going to read the tea leaves and see which way the organization's going. So it's our job to work out what giving looks like for ourselves so that we can inspire others And Mark, I think we've got a bevy of great clips coming up that are going to showcase what it it really looks like, how we might do it for ourselves and how we can inspire others to do it. I think we're ready to jump into 
getting into the DNA of givers, takers, and matches and how we can be on the right side of giving? I think so. And I think we can begin straight into our first step, which is all about understanding those givers, understanding what it means to be a giver, a taker, a matcher in the workplace. I wanted to compare the success of givers, takers, and matchers. Who are the most productive? Who are the least productive? So I got data across different kinds of jobs and different measures of success, tracking the productivity of engineers as a function of how many favors they do for their colleagues versus how many they receive in return. Looking at the grades of medical students based on how much they like helping others. And then also tracking salespeople. How much revenue do they accrue each year, depending on the amount of time they invest in their colleagues and their customers? Now, a lot of people think that the takers finish last. And if that's you, I want to congratulate you on being a raging optimist. They don't. The data show consistently that the givers finish last in each of these jobs. The worst engineers who get the least work done and make the most errors are the ones who do more favors than they get back. They're so busy helping their colleagues do their work, they run out of time and energy to get their own stuff done. In medicine, this is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. The lowest grades in medical school belong to the students who agree most strongly with statements like, I love helping others. Which suggests the doctor you ought to trust is the one who came to medical school with no desire to help anybody. And then in sales, the lowest revenue belongs to the people who spend the most time trying to help both their colleagues and their clients. I used to work in sales, and I found this a little bit puzzling. So I went to our data. I found the person with the highest giver score in his company and the lowest revenue. And I asked him, how do you explain this? Why do you suck at your job? I didn't ask it that way. But what is, what is the cost of being a giver in sales? And he paused and he said, can I be honest with you? I said, no, as a researcher, I want you to lie to me. Yes, please be honest. He said, well, if I can be 100% candid, I care so deeply about my customers that I would never sell them one of our crappy products. <laughs> I'm now rethinking honesty as a research policy. <laughs> okay, so... So this is really interesting. And I know right now some of our listeners might, must be like, well, Mark and Mike have gone on a serious dark side here. Mm -hmm. But actually what I think is so powerful about what Adam Grant sets out for us in his book, Give and Take, is that there is this whole notion that, oh, look, you know, do the right thing and all will be good. Actually what he's framing is in this case, someone who's a natural giver he's not really got an intersection between how he gives and his goals and the goals of the organization that he's in. So when you've got this disconnect, he's essentially telling us a story that he's playing for the wrong team because there are the, the goals and the giving are actually working against each other, not with each other. And I'll take you back to that earlier clip at the start of the show where we actually pointed out that it's the intersection of when your goals and your giving match, this takes you right to the top. And I think this is the big aha uh -huh in sort of creating our awareness around giving is that you've got to do it in the right way and you've got to do this almost um, with some sort of constraints. There's almost a catch-22. You've got to do it in the right way. Other, otherwise, it's sort of you end up like that sales guy that Adam was pointing out. And it's a bit of a surprise, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, it is. And uh, it's a great, uh, I suppose, awareness that we need to have. I, I know I've used this word a couple of times now, but for me, Adam 
is really, really singing all about raising a little bit of a flag over these over these topics, which is there's a natural tendency to assume, uh, I want to be a giver. You know, I uh, am giving away all of my time, therefore it's, it's a good thing. But actually, mm. what I think Adam's pointing out here and what you've just summarized there, Mike, you've got to have an awareness of giving in the right way. What identify where you might be falling short. Maybe you're giving too much of your time. And therefore, what you're actually doing is being detrimental not only to yourself, but maybe even to the business as a whole. Maybe you're dedicating too much time. Sure. To yeah, yeah. I, I think you're you're absolutely right there. And um I mean, at first glance, like when you say, you know, I want to give to others. It's, it's really no different than, I mean, it's such an agreeable concept. It's like saying, I want to be a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. well, Of course you do. I mean, <laughs> few people in this planet wake up saying, I want to be an idiot. I want to be uh, uh, someone who is uh, awful to be around. Now, that's not at all the, the, the case. But then what Adam points out to us is we've got to think this through and do this in the right way. For me, it, it all comes down to our personal energy, the effort, uh, the capacity for us to wake up every day and be our best selves comes from giving in the right way, in the right environment to the right people. And this is why I love this, this, this mantra of surround yourselves with great people. In fact, to take us all the way back to Jim Collins in Good to Great, so much of what we could learn from him is that if we want to build a great organization, don't start with the plan, start with the people. Just get the right people on the bus. Mm. And in fact, this is where we see Adam and Jim intersecting. He's talking about give under the right goals, uh, give under the right conditions, and all of this starts with the capacity to know your energy, who you want to give to, how you want to give, and what environment you need to do that. And his core concept that we're going to learn from now is how to create boundaries in order to let your energy and let your giving have the maximum impact. So let's have a dive into the world of Adam Grant and listen to how we can avoid being a doormat and how we can set boundaries. Question is, how do you avoid the doormat effect? And I would give a bunch of different answers to this. The first one is, other risk givers set boundaries. One of my favorite people that I interviewed for the book is a Deloitte consulting partner by the name of Jason Geller. If you join Deloitte Human Capital, uh, Jason's the HR transformation leader, both for the US and globally. He's a really busy guy. But if you join at any level and you meet him in the New York office, he will make a standing offer to you and every other new hire, which is let's set up a meeting and I will mentor you. And if it's useful, we will have a recurring meeting once a month forever. Anybody who works for Deloitte is, is open to that. And the question is, how does he maintain his own time and energy? One of the best ways that he does this is he has basically Friday set aside as meeting time. And the other days of the week, he's got blocked off to do his own work. On Fridays, he knows he's going to be mentoring, helping, and trying to benefit other people. But soon, he has more mentees than he could possibly fit on a Friday. So what does he do? He takes a page out of Adam Rifkin's book. 
And he says, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start turning other people into givers. So new hires start to come in, and he asks his current mentees to come to lunch with him and basically asks the people he's mentored to start mentoring the people below them. And he starts creating mentor networks. So now his giving is more efficient because he's trained a bunch of people in how to be a successful mentor, and now they're kind of paying that forward to the next group. And that turns out to be really, really scalable. A couple other favorite versions of this. There's a Fortune 500 company a few years ago was trying to produce a laser printer on time. It was a, a state-of-the-art product. They'd only had one product ever launch on time in the history of the company. And the engineers who were doing this work were basically getting interrupted all the time by each other. So you'd be working for 30 seconds and somebody says, hey, what do you think of this? You get another minute of work done and then somebody interrupts you and says, I really need your help with this. And by the time you're done helping other people, it's like 11 at night. So what do the engineers start doing? They start working nights and weekends and early mornings. But everyone starts doing this. And so then you have all these people following you into the office off hours who are now bugging you for your help. So some of the engineers become takers, and they just say, you know what, I'm just going to be really nasty and tough with my colleagues, and then they won't bother me. Obviously not productive or efficient if you have knowledge to share. So uh, Harvard professor Leslie Perlow comes in and says, I'm going to work with the engineers to create a quiet time policy. Three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, from 9 to 12, no interruptions. You can get your own work done in that window, and then you have all afternoon, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and all day Tuesday, Thursday to help. Engineers, on average, 66% of them achieved above average productivity. They launched the product on time, second time in division history. And it was a really simple boundary to maintain. One of my favorite uh, applications of this is out of office messages on email. I'm working on a really important project right now. I'm busy for the next four hours. If you, something is urgent, please come see me or give me a call. Almost no one ever does. And I think it's a really great way to protect your time if you're a giver without being helpful all the time, every moment. Mm, nice meaty clip. Uh, let's try and distill some of the key things that Adam's saying there. If the, if the preceding clip was all about awareness and finding that intersection um, of, of giving and trying to find the right balance of achieving your goals and, and helping others at the same time, I think this one's actually, okay, well, let's now get into the meat of it. Let's now think about action, activity. What can we do? And it reminds me a little bit of, of what Brené was saying, because once you've really uncovered, okay, once you've identified the challenges that maybe you have in place for yourself and for helping others, you can then try to actually take ownership of it. You know, this is something that you and I have spoken about a lot in the past, Mike. Once you take ownership of your time, of your projects, and of the things that you can control, it becomes a lot easier to, to stay on top of things. And I think what Adam's saying mm. here is you've got to make sure that you are protected. And I love this idea of the barrier and, and the doormat and so on. So for me, I think sometimes my projects and sometimes time and sometimes requests from, let's say, clients will come up and that will distract me or that will you know, maybe knock my day off kilter. So for me, what I've tried to do is actively over the last couple of weeks, in fact, block out time, very similar to what Adam's saying here and very, very reminiscent of what Cal was teaching us in the, in the deep, work, uh, uh, deep Work book of his. It's actually dedicating a specific and allotment of time, turning off all your notifications, your phone, putting in your headphones and just getting on with a little bit of work. What, what do you think, Mike? What, what, for me, I think time blocking really, really helps. 
Yes. It, not only does it in terms of, I think it's a basic uh, survival technique of modern work. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is basic, I, yeah. I, I honestly think um, that uh, I, I notice particularly large organisations, a lot of executives are literally just back-to-back, nine-to-five. And so my question to those folks is when do you do any work? Like when do you mm. think? Uh, when do you decode? When do you learn? Um and so I think this idea of creating, you know, what Adam was talking about there is actually enforcing a quiet time. And so um, this is enormously powerful, I think. And what you start to, to see is um, that you have full control of your time and your calendar and uh, you can push back. Um, and, you know, for me, the best way to push back is, listen, in order for me to provide this deliverable, this document, this presentation, this masterclass, whatever is your thing, um, I need this much time. By you requiring an additional thing, you put the quality of my work in jeopardy. So I often provide trade-offs. Oh, if you want to uh, do that uh, really quickly, then when I manage my time, we have to then push back this other deliverable. Mm. And then what I often find is when you present uh, that um, people will, uh, I never get to an impasse, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Even with the biggest of clients on the most important of deliverables, um, there's always a way uh, for us to get it because it starts from, you know, I know what I can do and deliver. In addition to that, there was something else um, that that I really liked about that, that I, I want to pull out a bit more from Adam. He talked about allocating a time, hey, if you really need me, call me or come and walk over to me. And he, he gave away an interesting thing that I've also learned, which is he said, and a lot of people don't do that. Hmm. So they're looking for the quick win, like, hey, Mark, can you do this for me? Hey, Mark, I need that. Or, hey, Mark, what do you think of this? But if you just raise the barrier to participation, um, what you'll find is a lot of people just simply won't put the work in. So a great thing is when someone says, can you help me on something? Um, oh, yeah, sure. Can you just write a small brief? Yeah. And if it really matters to them, they'll happily write you a small brief. They've probably already got a small brief. And then if someone's prepared to write a, uh, do a write-up of the problem, then you instantly know it matters to them and they frame uh, to the best of their ability the problem and then you can apply your energies to that. So the classic uh, screener that I have when somebody rings me up and says, oh, Mike, we want to build an amazing product, let's do this. I'm like, great. Um send me uh, a write-up of the idea and send me all of the user testing that you've done. Mm -hmm. And immediately then only maybe five out of every hundred actually follow up on that. And so my point here is this is how I protect myself from a natural desire to want to learn and innovate and work with others. My filter is, okay, send me a brief. So I actually have a thing uh, right now where an organization wants to build this big uh, new uh, piece of technology and um, I'm like, please send me the brief and I've yet to receive it. So I know that for whatever good reasons, it's just not that important to them. So I'm spending 
zero time on helping them, zero time on giving them. And I hope that would make Adam mm. Grant very proud. And just to, just to build on that, because I've scribbled it down because I, I, I love that. The, the barrier to participate, <laughs> which, which I think is mm-hmm. a great phrase, mm-hmm. the barrier to participate is actually exactly what Adam would say is, uh, y- you know, the action that you would have. You know, he talks about uh, putting quiet time to do your work. I think here that awareness and that creation of yours is you saying, or you being aware of you being a giver normally, and it would be detrimental to your own time as well as you know, existing uh, mm-hmm. commitments that you've made if you were to freely hand it out. So I think that that barrier actually, it not only pushes the new um, activity forward, it pushes that new client to align their own dots, but actually it protects those around you as well. I, I think that's a great, a great barrier. Nice. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And, and I think that... Um, Giving with intention, uh, giving when it matters are all ways of framing um, Adam Grant's advice. Don't just be reckless in your giving to all and everyone that just swings by because the truth is um, your giving means the most when somebody really wants the help and the support. So filter for that. And invariably what I find is a lot of people are lazy, so they ask for help, but what they're saying is, can you do my work for me? Yes, exactly. Takers. So that's, yeah, so they're takers, so just protect yourself. So I feel like now we're really starting to frame um, sort of the DNA of giving and this little catch-22 with it that you can't just um, give like crazy and, and sort of hope that it all works out. There's a bit of an art to it and and that, that setting boundaries is the perfect advice from Adam Grant. Mark, before we jump into the second part of the show, when we really get into that, the how we uh, do giving in the right way, how we inspire others, something that strikes me is we haven't told people, we haven't told all our listeners where they should go if they want to get show notes, if they want to get into the archive, if they want to uh, connect to any of our social um, Mark, where does one go if they want to know more about the Moonshots podcast? It's my favorite destination on the planet or in the universe, perhaps. It is www.moonshots.io. Of course. Everybody the place to be now. <laughs> exactly. Now, if I, if, I, if I remember rightly, you did promise us that we were going to be challenging Netflix on, on, uh, on traffic. I think I think you wanted to go more than 180 billion, uh, 180 million users, Mark. I think that was yeah. the, the yep. daring goal you set. That was that I'm was not- the the big hairy audacious goal. Um, <laughs> it was a BHAG, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I'm not really sure if we're there yet, Mark, but I can tell you that we continue to get lots of ratings and reviews. We are just a few ratings shy of one. 100 ratings on all the uh, podcast uh, apps around the world. Mark, I think there's a big call to action to our listeners. If they're listening right now, what do we want to ask them? We want to crack the 100, right? We really do. In fact, maybe if we can get that by next week, uh, I don't know. What, what, a, what an amazing event that would be. Uh, I'd love everybody, we'd both love everybody to go and leave us a review um, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
wherever you consume your, your podcasts. We really appreciate all of the emails that we receive at hello at moonshots.io. Uh, we just want to get the word out there and, and your listening as well as your interactions really drive uh, our ability to reach other people. So thank you very much mm. for, for listening as well as leaving reviews where possible. And it really matters because um, when you give us a rating or review, this is one of the primary ways that the podcast apps uh, know to recommend our show to new listeners. And we're all about helping more and more people uh, to learn from innovators. And I'm so excited to to share with everyone that um, if we look at, at how rating uh, and reviewing the show has really helped, we have entered in... Um, uh, we're on the charts now for um, the top uh, Spanish business podcast. We've entered into Mexico as well, Mark. I, I, I hope you're brushing up on your Spanish um, and eating a little bit of tapas. Um, we're rocketing up the charts in Macau of all places on the podcast. So, ladies and gentlemen, it really does help. And uh, we're so grateful for you sharing your time with us to, to learn from innovators and it really does, when you rate the show, when you review the show, it helps others find out about it. So just jump into your podcast app right now while we're chatting and just give us your review, your rating, your thoughts, because we get them from all over the world. We do love them. And it is an essential part of our mission, which is to help others learn from innovators. All right. I think we're, we're ready now to jump into the hard work of giving in the right way. And, um, you know, the interesting thing is, once again, we're going to kind of push on the, on the negative side first here because I think it's really important to do. Um, and at what Adam Grant really points out, we'll remember that he gave us three archetypes, the givers, the takers, the matches. And one of the things that's really crucial is to be able to spot a taker. One, you've got to protect yourself. And what we'll get into later on the show is actually we want to try and convert them to being more of a matcher or even if we can, to making them a giver. But let's start with Adam Grant talking about how we screen out the takers. The negative impact of a taker typically exceeds the positive impact of a giver by a multiple of two or three to one. You find that it's pretty easy for one taker to be the bad apple that spoils the barrel. But when you put one giver in an organization, it's not like one good egg will always make a dozen. I've spent a good chunk of time in the past year working with organizations on mechanisms for screening out takers. And I think what's powerful about that is if you can eliminate takers from your organization, then you have givers and matchers. The givers will act more generously because they don't have to be paranoid that takers are out to get them. And the beauty of matchers, which is most people, is that they tend to follow the norm and reciprocate the, the way that they've been treated. So matchers act like givers in the presence of givers. They're also useful for dealing with, if you have clients, for example, who are takers, matchers will, will actually fight fire with fire when they have to. So then the question is, how do you screen out takers? And there are a couple ways to think about this. One way to screen out takers is to recognize that they follow a pattern of kissing up, kicking down. If you're a taker, it's quite important to be a good faker when you're dealing with powerful people, because of course you want them to think well of you. But if you've never tried, it turns out to be a lot of work to pretend to care about every person you meet. And takers tend to let their guard down a little bit when dealing with peers and subordinates, which means that you should be really skeptical of references that come from bosses. And lateral and references from below are actually qu quite valuable. 
There's also evidence that takers, when they talk about success, tend to use two words more than the rest of us, which are I and me. And then when they talk about failures, they tend to place blame externally. And then my, my favorite way of screening out takers actually is to present them with situational interviews. A lot of organizations do behavioral interviews where they're backward looking and asking about your history, what you've accomplished, what challenges you've overcome. And those actually don't turn out to be very effective if you look at the evidence because they suffer from an apples and oranges problem. It's very hard to compare two people's work histories. Instead, what you want to do is you want to ask, what would you do in a situation like this and give everybody the same situation? Now, the problem is, no, no one wants to admit, I would be a taker here. But there's an easy way around this, which is instead of asking, what would you do? You ask people to predict what other people would do. Most of us tend to project our own motivations onto other people. So if you give me a scenario where it's not clear whether the appropriate behavior is giving, taking, or matching, lo and behold, what I'll tend to do when predicting others' behavior is ask, well, what would I do in this situation? And then you get my honest opinion. So integrity test research, for example, shows that the higher my estimate that other people will be thieves, the greater the odds that I myself am a thief. Hmm. Yeah, it's, again, it's a nice, good, meaty clip from, from Adam. This one, again, is very much around identifying others and identifying perhaps behavioral traits, um, language, um, behavior that means that individuals fall into, you know, the, the taker space. What I like about it is, you know, Adam is again demonstrating something that's slightly different to some of the other innovators that we covered on the show. He's very, very really focusing on how we interact with others. You know, again, this idea of business having uh, previously been really, really focused on passion and perhaps who you know now, this idea of, okay, well, where do you spend your time and how do you dedicate? How do you collaborate, right? How do you, how do you work with each other? Exactly. That's the word. And if you're, if, if you're a taker, no one really wants to collaborate with you, right? Exactly, because because it's exhausting. The, yeah, where where where's the reciprocal uh, nature? Mm -hmm. Humans are reciprocal. That's that's mm -hmm. what we do. Whereas takers are falling away from that. And what a great screener tip! This idea of propose to them a, a scenario where it's not really clear how others would do it, and then that they will actually project their own point of view when it's not clear. I thought that was brilliant, didn't you? Oh yeah, and I love that tip. Instead of thinking how you would respond, how would others respond? It's yes. a nice way yeah. of quite literally taking your your kind of brain out of your head <laughs> and yeah. thinking outside yeah. the box. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and as he was describing some of those behaviors, what I would call out to all of our listeners is you can I mean, I was personally just having this visceral like, yeah, I don't want to be around people like that. Now, as much as he kind of framed it as in these are the how you spot a taker, how you screen them out. What I also do is it, it, I find it a timely reminder to me about the appropriate behavior with others. And I think it's really important to remember, to ask yourself, I mean, let's do this as an example. If you think about the three people that you collaborate uh, the most with at work, are you giving enough? Are you really helping, supporting, and mentoring them enough? I just think that's a really important thing 
to ask yourself of the people around you to know if you're on track. And I think what we're starting to see is as we, and I think why this is so timely, is that skills can be learned. So, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. You can jump into YouTube and just say, how do I dot, 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 fill in the blank, right? A lot of those uh, skills and tactics can be, can be learned. Uh, habits can be formed. But the most important thing is to challenge yourself on a behavioral, on your norms and values, because those are so fundamental. And I would always propose this to our listeners. If you are brilliant, if you have an expert skill, but you're a huge taker in the way you behave and collaborate with others, you will not go far. Because no matter how brilliant you are, the the tax of working with you is perceived to be so high from others in the organization that you're basically, all that talent will go to waste. So if we can remind ourselves to be givers or at least matchers and definitely avoid being takers, I think we're really not only helping those around us, but I think we're going to unlock more of the potential inside of us because people will want to be with us, to work with us, to help us when we need it. And I think that's such an important thing to emphasize because so much of recruitment and evaluation is based on skills and not on behaviors. And that, that to me, Mark, that's the power of Adam Grant's work. You know what? You, you're totally right. That, that, is, that is it. He's raising that awareness of focus on people's behavior rather than the skills. And, and you're, you're right. Skills can be learned. Behavior is much harder to, to yes, change, to which change. is ultimately it is. what we're talking about and give, give and take. It's identified and then have a proactive action to challenge yourself. I, I, I like this as a, as a mantra. Mm. Um, mm. How, how much am I supporting? How much am I giving to one another's? Am I giving them enough? Um, and, but also challenging myself at, Am I saving enough time to give to myself, you know, to, to do my own work? I think yep. that's a nice business practice. So I really love the two sides of screening out takers, using it for the people around you um, and calling people out if they're taking too much, but also holding yourself to account, uh, making sure that you're on track and that you're not taking um, more than you are giving. But we did say that this behavioral change, it ain't easy. And we've talked a lot about putting the lens on yourself. But the great news is that Adam Grant has more wisdom for us, Mark. He's got a lot more uh, thinking for us to decode around this behavior change. And I think this is the real, we're starting to see the dimensions of Adam Grant. We're seeing that it's about really getting to the understanding of giving, that sort of DNA, that there are these three archetypes. And that if you're going to be a giver, you really do need to create these boundaries and constraints so that you don't, um, you know, become a doormat, as, as he would say. And it really also then takes us to this level of looking around you is, is spotting the takers and making sure that you don't have takers in your team. And that you always challenge yourself to evaluate yourself because this is an inherent behavior. So it's a very deep thought 
It's a very deep feeling that comes from us and it powers how we collaborate. But Adam Grant, I think, Mark, Adam Grant has got a lot more for us. He certainly does. And in the next clip, we're going to hear a little bit from Adam about turning what you might call takers and try to ease them or at least identify themselves and proactively move into something more like givers. For me, the biggest unanswered question from give and take is what are the steps for turning a taker into a giver? We know a lot about how to get takers to give in a particular moment. No one wants to be seen as a taker. If you can make behavior visible, takers tend to either match or give a little bit more. We also know that takers tend to be more generous once they identify with an organization or a person. As they become attached to either you or to a group of people, then they start to blur the line between self-interest and concern for others because if we're identified with each other, then helping you or helping this organization is gonna reflect positively on me. The problem is when the taker switches to a different relationship, a different group, a different organization, it's like a reset button has been hit. And that person might go back to his or her old ways. So one of the things I'd love to explore next is what, is it, what does it actually require to shift a taker's more fundamental mindset and values? It's probably worth recognizing that there are different reasons that people fall into a, a taker pattern of behavior and that we might actually need different strategies for influencing them depending on whether they're taking because they're narcissists and they have very inflated but fragile egos and it's a sense of scarcity and insecurity that leads them to feel they've got to claim everything for themselves. Is it, on the other hand, that they used to be a giver or a matcher and got burned one too many times and learned the hard way it's, it's dangerous to not be selfish? And uh, I'd love to, to investigate that a little bit more. But if you look at the data, what most employees are looking for in their jobs is a sense of meaning and purpose. And when you look at, in turn, what makes work meaningful, what enables people to feel that their daily lives in organizations are significant, more than anything else, it's the belief that my work makes a difference, that what I do has some kind of benefit or lasting value to other people. And I think this is something a lot of leaders overlook. I spent a couple years studying call centers and asked leaders, what would you do to motivate people who are working in very stressful, difficult jobs? And the most common answers were, of course, the opposite of what we actually found worked. A lot of employees were skeptical, especially in a call center context, of, you know, does, does my work really do this good, or is my boss just trying to get me to work harder? There's an ulterior motive there. And what I found with a group of colleagues is that it's actually really effective to outsource inspiration, to find the customers, the clients, the end users who benefit from your products and services, who can really speak firsthand to their impact. And we got staggering results in the call center setting when doing this. We bring in one person who's benefited from the work that you do to talk for five minutes about its impact, and we get over a 400% caller-by-caller spike in weekly productivity. I think sometimes there is a tension between highlighting the mission and purpose behind work and measuring day-to-day -day performance. I think one of the challenges that we all face as leaders is also an opportunity to say, what can we do to actually translate those day-to-day -day performance metrics into contributions toward the mission? Or into, you know, here's the, the way in which the purpose of this work is being fulfilled. So an interesting example of this that comes to mind is at Merck, where we've had a number of conversations about the idea that many of the, the jobs, particularly if you're doing sales, are hard to connect to what's the real impact on patients. But if you could actually translate the value of a drug into life years saved or quality of life contributed, it really shifts the meaning of the work and now the performance measurements are less mundane. It's not easy to do, but I think in the next few years we're going to see organizations actually start to innovate by coming up with, with mission-relevant metrics as opposed to just standard performance evaluations. Holy guacamole, Mark. That was like the most 
densest clip we've ever had on the show. I think that, oh my gosh, there was a lot in there, wasn't there? There's a lot to delve into though, which is great, isn't it? So, oh, so yeah. Many, oh. So many layers. Yeah. So, so let's, let's try and decode this right now together and, and share some, some thoughts with our listeners. I want to go back to the start and I, I kind of feel like there was three levels of what he just said. First of all, is it's all about getting to why is someone actually a taker? What is the motivation? And then he was like, okay, how can we, how can we open them up again to be more of a giver? And how can that giving uh, on the third level fit in with the overall purpose of the team and the organization? I think that was the frame in which we can, we can study this. So as an exercise, I'm going to put some questions to you. When you have um, been working uh, with takers, what do you, from your experience, why are they takers? Why are they looking to exploit rather than to give? When you think back, Mark, to all the people you've worked with, with the takers, why are they like that? The easy answer, the easy answer would be they're a bit lazy. They don't want to do the work, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. But but I think that that would be too easy, you know. And actually, and something that we've obviously talked about in the past on the show is the best way to work with others, to collaborate, and maybe even to lead others, is to have an awareness of what's going on in that person's uh, peripheral vision, their life, their environment, and so on and so forth. So even though my natural inclination would be to say, oh, this so-and-so, he's a taker because you know he's lazy and wants to take the glory. I've actually then got to challenge myself at thinking, oh, but hang on, he's only like this because maybe he's been burned before. Maybe he has suffered at the hands of another individual and now he's put up his own barriers. Much like Adam's telling us, make sure you've got your uh, you know, your anti-doormat <laughs> effect. Maybe this individual's just gone a little bit too far. And maybe they've now lashed out at each other and, and people like myself, and they are now negatively impacting the world around. Mm. I, 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 think, uh, I think it's fear. I think a lot of people are scared. Mm. I think a lot of, a lot of people want to fit in. I think a lot of people want to be accepted. A lot of people don't want to feel the embarrassment of failure. And so their defensive mechanism is that they're actually closed. They're actually not prepared to give of themselves, but to take from others as a defensive mechanism. And I think that the reason why people don't try, to your point about laziness, I think you're absolutely right. People can be lazy. I think the reason that they don't try is they're scared to death about failure. Mm. And that might be from an experience they've had in life where they tried and failed and it was embarrassing. And I think what's so amazing is um, how crippling uh, that attitude, this fear of failure, this uh, insecurity in oneself, how it can be such a blocker to people realizing their potential being the best version of themselves. So let's take this archetype because I'm sure everyone is now kind of imagining someone that they know 
and thinking about that person go, they are such a taker, they're not a giver. And let's let's think about that person and see how we might get them over this fear or this laziness or whatever it is that is driving them, which is closing them up. And I think, I think it comes from creating safety um, and giving them confidence that even if they were to fail, that it would be celebrated as a learning rather than judged as a personal failure. Now, if we were to create that environment, my hypothesis that I'm proposing is that this might help someone who's, you know, at heart, an archetype, as Adam Grant would call it, a taker, if we can create that safety. So my question, the second follow-up question here, Mark, is how do you create those kind of conditions for people in your team? I think it begins with communication, whether that's, you know, face-to-face, uh, in business as usual, obviously it's a little bit harder right now in the current climate, but you can still do that over telephone calls, video conferencing, emails, text messages, and so on. And I think it's communicating a couple of different points. One could be how are you doing, and and checking in from a you know a status uh, perspective, progress perspective, mindset perhaps, but also following it up with how can I help. So. What you're doing there is you're instilling, one, I'm reaching out to you, starting the dialogue. Two, I'm giving you a chance to ask for help if you need it. It's okay to ask for help. And I think that's one of the, the core blockers, I think, uh, when it comes to accepting safety and accepting comfort. Like you say, it's the fear. It's the fear of failure, but also the fear of asking for help when you, when you need it. So how are you going to – so you've got this – this taker in front of you, you're going to communicate to them. And what do you communicate to them? Like, how do you, how do you, let's get into this. Like, what does that communication look like? Yeah, I, I think, I think it genuinely starts much like Adam is, is telling us it's uh, the human reciprocity. So I will, um, maybe I behave more like a matcher. So a, a good, um, uh, demonstration of this perhaps could be, right, um, teammate, I need you to help me here. I need your skills at, I don't know, producing a podcast perhaps. And in return, even though you might not, you know, vouch it or, or couch it as that, I will help you out by doing X. And then what you're starting to do with the taker is showing them two sides of the coin. You're showing mm. them, right, you will benefit if I help you out here. But also, I'm going to um, ask for your help. And in doing so, we become stronger. We become a team. We collaborate. And the work will be greater. No longer will you be um, you know, taking or benefiting from whatever it is that you've done in the past. Now we're going to work together. And it's a little bit more cohesion, a little bit more like glue. Yeah, I, I like it. I mean, this, this would be a classic construct uh, where you could use Simon Sinek to say, here's what we're doing, here's how we're doing it, and here's why. Because this comes back to the third point that Adam Grant was making, this third level of turning takers into givers, which is making people aware and understanding of the purpose of the team and the organization. Often people have very little uh, understanding of why does this company exist? 
they might understand what they do, maybe a little bit about how we do it, but certainly rarely is the why understood of an organization. So I think you can you can definitely, and I love this idea that you suggested, communicate, because often it all comes down to people are just not aligned because they haven't communicated. And I think the checklist for all of us is, are we communicating what we're going to do, how we're going to do, why we're going to do it? And it's a great formula. It's the golden circle from Simon Sinek. Go check out our podcast on Simon. The key to this is communication. But I think it's also there has to be the capacity to create explicit safety for for learning, for testing, for experimenting, because most people have big dreams but it's the fear of failure that stops them from going out into the world and living the life they dream. I mean, how many times do you hear even from your friends when they talk about, oh, wow, that would be amazing. Oh, (laughs) if only, or I wish. But imagine if in, in a work setting you say to them, you give people the opportunity to feel the safety of dreaming big and they try something, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And then all he says, that's okay. What did you learn? What, what might we do next based on that learning? And if you, if you have a growth mindset versus the inverting of that, which is judgment, being judgmental, uh, accusation, pointing out all the negative, if you create safety, I truly believe a lot of takers will dare to give. I think they will they will make that move. But for those listening to this podcast, it's our choice to be givers and to be forgiving of those who are takers and to help them see that it is safe to give. I think there's a huge win there if we can make that step and bring their, bring those takers, if you will, along with us. I couldn't say it better myself, Mike. <laughs> I think Adam would be 100% on your page there. And if if I can just add one slight thing, I think, you know, what Adam's teaching us in, in the last clip, he's talking about outsourcing inspiration. And similar to what you've just said with regards to, to confidence and the question from friends, colleagues of, oh, wouldn't it be nice if and this fear of failure, outsourcing innovation is in, in its chorus form, user testing. Go and get the product out there, go and ask some questions, see how your end users are using it, what they like about it, what they don't like about it. And slowly you'll start to realize, oh, it's, I don't mind receiving some negative criticism because ultimately it's going to be proactive and productive. And the fear of failure then starts to subside it starts to go away a little bit because suddenly you're seeing iterative growth. And exactly as you just say, what do we learn? What are we going to go and do next? And I think that's, that's a really nice. I just wanted to add that. Love it. Nice one. Nice, nice, nice. Well, here we are. We, we get to this point where it's the very last and final clip. And, um, you know, the interesting thing now is we're going to learn a really powerful technique, which I truly hope that all of our listeners can use 
As soon as the podcast is finished, this is something that you can use on yourself. This is Adam Grant talking about making better decisions for yourself. Have you ever given advice to a friend where you just felt like, I just gave the best advice ever, and then you found yourself in the same situation a few days later and you made a horrible decision? Absolutely. I do it all the time. I'm very good advice giver. Very bad life decision maker. Yeah. What, what's that about? Because they're the same skills, right? Giving people advice on what to do and then making your own decisions. It's the exact same thing. Except it's not. It's called Solomon's Paradox. And the idea is that when you give other people advice, you look at the problem through a telescope and you see the big picture, you focus on the two or three criteria that are really important. Whereas when you're making your own decisions, you tend to look at it through a microscope, which is how we end up with these Excel spreadsheets that have 19 different columns, and then you're adjusting the weights, how important is each factor in order to get the decision that you want. And I think that this illustrates, it's one thing to know what a good decision is, it's another thing to be able to make that decision yourself. And because, because it's so difficult, you know, if, if you were to actually sit down and analyze every decision in your life, you could spend hours deciding, well, what time should I wake up? Should I wake up at 6.01 or 6.02? I mean, every, my whole life could be different because of that, right? What should I order to eat? Um, you know, who, who should I call first this morning? Which way should I take to work? These decisions, we, we could spend all day just making these, these potentially paralyzing decisions. We don't want to do that. We don't want to waste our time. So what we do is we develop what are called heuristics, which are sort of mental shortcuts. If I can you know, say to myself, well, you know, experts are usually correct, I don't have to analyze a bunch of decisions where there's already expert opinion. And a lot of times those heuristics make us smart and they make us much more efficient decision makers. The problem is we overapply them. And so we might end up in a situation where the heuristic was good the last nine times we tried it, but you know what, now the expert is wrong and we haven't really stopped to think about whether we can trust that expert in that situation. Ooh. Adam's bringing it all the way round in that final clip, isn't he? We've learned all around identifying takers and givers, as well as receiving some inspirational advice on how we can action certain barriers uh, and acknowledgement of of how to do it in our day-to-day life. What I like about that final clip there is, right, well, how can I demonstrate that in my day-to-day life as soon as I wake up? not even when I'm interacting with colleagues and clients. And it's so true. I'm very much one of these people who probably has a spreadsheet of 19 columns uh, allowing me to make a finite uh, or, or minute decisions here and there. And actually what it does is it removes my ability at seeing the whole picture. And sometimes when I talk about things, when when I talk about a, a challenge or a problem with uh, you know my wife or, or friends, I really do feel as though their disconnect from the, the day-to-day uh, interaction that I have with that particular problem, it betters my own understanding of it mm. because it is quite removed. You know, the whole problem shared is a problem halved um, testimony, I think comes from once you've shared it with somebody else, you realize, oh, it's not that big a deal. It's okay. From the bigger picture perspective, yes. just because this particular challenge is not as much of an opportunity as I thought it might be, it's okay. Not the end of the world. And I like how Adam uses this telescope versus microscope um, analogy there. I think that's that's really powerful for me. 
Yeah, and and I think that what he's getting at is we often have this huge bias that we're not aware of, and often that bias is caused by emotional triggers in the situation that cloud your vision. And this is why controlling your emotions is so important and your mindset is how you do this. I, I think one of the practices that I've really enjoyed to give myself perspective on myself is to take a little bit of time. When big things are happening, I try and create time and space, whether that's an hour, a day, a week, whatever I can get, just to simmer down, both on the upside and the downside. And one of the things that I do is I try and disembody as if I'm almost coaching myself. Um, And I I love the analogy of a chess game. Just, I, I have this thing, don't um, get ex- overexcited or over frustrated. It's a chess game. Play the, for the long haul. What's the move to make here? Like it's a chess game. So I think what that does is creates a little bit of emotional separation um, so that you can like take a breath, take some time and make a more balanced uh, decision and avoid just rapid fire emotional s- response. How do you move between the microscope and the the perspective part, uh, Mark? What do you do to 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 kind of make better decisions for yourself? I tell you what, I can't get the chess game out of my head now. The idea of, <laughs> of reacting so violently if somebody's taken your rook, you know that that's a great life lesson. Don't react so instantly. It's okay. Yes. It's it's the long haul. Play the strategic game. I, I think that's that's great. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But let's turn the the mirror on me. What do I do? I think we've discussed, um, particularly when I think we were we were talking about Michelle, this idea of taking a beat before making decisions. So having a, a breath. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm, mm. I'm reminded of your behaviour when you walk in through the door. Maybe that's your opportunity to take a breath, and I, I quite like that. And I think when I'm not trying to make a rash decision, I think taking that breath, maybe even sleeping on it. One of my techniques is I will yes. make a decision. Let's say it's uh, something as silly as where to go on holiday all the way through to, okay, well, how do I want to respond to this mm-hmm. real challenge at work? I will choose a decision and say, cool, that's it. Close the laptop, close my book, and I'll sleep on it. Then when I wake up, and I'll fully commit in my own head that that is the decision. When I wake up and start thinking about it again, if I have an element of regret or pushback or unease, then mm. that's my trigger to know I don't think this was the right decision. And you've still got and I think, and I think when you when you are composed like that, I think it also helps you avoid being a taker, and just sets you up for being much more of a giver, or at least. A matcher, and I think that's where Adam Grant's advice really comes 360 for us. Um, what we have been able to see is this very, um, very clear uh, path of there is a sort of a, a formula, if you will, to, to understanding giving, which is these three archetypes: givers, takers, matches. And if you, we know that givers net net have the most positive contribution to make in the world. But, and this is a big but, you've got to do it in the right way. You've got to set those boundaries. And if you set those boundaries, you'll give of yourself. 
you'll be the best version of yourself. But then secondly, this allows us to operate within teams, to screen out the takers, and to also take deliberate leadership behavior to convert takers into givers. And if we go with our best self, we'll make the right decisions about ourselves, those around us, our teams, our businesses, our communities. And I think um, it is such a powerful reminder of a very uh, a very fundamental idea of give more than you get. And I think understanding the role of giving and taking, like a lot of the things that Simon Sinek brings, I think Adam Grant is talking about things that are not usually on the agenda in a team at work. And I love the fact that we're putting as equal attention to skills and behaviors, because really in the end, if you really enjoy working with someone uh, in the office, maybe they're not the greatest on the skills level, but if they're generous and helpful and collaborative, it's amazing the goodwill and the good energy that comes from that, isn't it, Mark? I totally agree. It's, it, it's, Adam's really, really celebrating this idea of identifying behavior and, and celebrating it, and, and, and which is why I'm really excited about the Adam Grant series. You know, we're really- Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going to go on a bit of a roller coaster um, over the next two episodes. We're going to look at creativity and original thinking and overcoming adversity. I mean, how good is that? What a spectrum in which Adam Grant- uh, operates. Uh, let me ask you, Mike, what's, what's one thing that you might change now that you've had the chance to div in, dive into Adam Grant's book, Give and Take? I think it's going to be the uh, giving in the right way. So mm. challenging myself at thinking, okay, right, how do I maintain a barrier around what I really, really need to do? You know, this, this um, doormat effect, I think is very, very easy to to do. It's very easy to either A, ask too much of others, but also B, it's, I think it's easy to, to give too much to others. So maintaining that protection, I think is going to be my challenge each day. I'm going to think, okay, well, how do I make sure that that is, that is protected? How about you, Mike? What, what's your takeout? What's your activity? Yeah, I think, um, I think the new thing for me, I feel like I'm, I'm looking at the list, Mark, and I'm like, oh, I'm trying, trying to do that and I'm trying to do yeah, that. I think, I, I think specifically um, creating some of that, that safety and um, that environment for those that are not natural givers to transform them. I think that's, that's where I'm going to focus my effort on and uh, to inspire them um, to give a little more. Fantastic. What an episode. <laughs> there we are. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on this journey into Adam Grant. We have two more episodes. The next one, we'll be diving into his book, Originals. Um, this is such a step change to the media innovators, which is a step change to the women in innovation. Uh, I just... Learning from innovators just keeps on giving. So thank you to you and a special thank you to all our listeners. Don't forget... If you're still listening, you need to go out. You need to give us a review or a rating in your favorite podcast application because we're dying to get the word out. Um, and 
We really do look forward to all of you joining us on the next episode of delving into Adam Grant and all his wonderful thinking. I think that brings us to the end of the show, another end of the Moonshots podcast. That's a wrap.